Hello and welcome to the British Chamber of Commerce Singapore's podcast channel. With over 15,000 downloads since launch, we are excited to bring you season four featuring in-depth content on business, global affairs and news across Singapore, ASEAN and the United Kingdom. We've had some extraordinary guests on our channel, including W Series driver Abby Eaton. And we've got thoughts of the future now. Um, you know, I'd love to to try and kind of mentor some of the younger drivers. You know, renowned UK international education champion Professor Sir Steve Smith. Over about a four-year period, we kept increasing the resources going into mental health provision. Chief Executive and Director of the London Design Museum. Tim Marlowe. The way we design is actually thinking about the needs of, of everyone. And CEO of the industry cluster group at JTC, Alvin Tan. If you look at PDD, we are creating an ecosystem of companies, government agencies and industry association with digital space. Thank you, as always, for your continued support, and I hope you enjoy this podcast. A warm welcome to everyone for our podcast today, which is in partnership with Money Hero. I'm really pleased to have Nawaz Imam here, who's their head of uh, strategy. And also, we're going to talk about uh, the growth in Asia for fintechs, which is an exciting topic. And he is really keen to share all of the story that we've had so far for Money Hero. Would you like to introduce yourself for a moment? Absolutely. Well, thanks very much, uh... Mike and the Britcham team coming me on this uh, on this podcast. Um, so yeah, just by way of introduction, so I uh, I run uh, group strategy and corporate development for Money Hero Group, um, which is a large consumer finance fintech uh, operating out across five markets in what we call Greater Southeast Asia. So that's Singapore, Malaysia, Philippines, Hong Kong, and Taiwan. The business itself operates consumer facing brands which are essentially marketplaces that people can go on to learn about their personal finance options like credit cards, personal loans, insurance, and so forth and so on across these markets, you know, make the right choices and then apply for those products as well. I joined the company about three years ago when it was much smaller at sort of the Series B uh, stage. And we've kind of grown it really aggressively since then across all of these markets and fortunately, we're in a position to take it public on NASDAQ on October the 13th. So about a month and a half ago. So Congratulations. Uh, yeah, thanks. It's been, a, it's been a one, uh, certainly one journey, uh, and that journey continues. Uh, so prior to joining One Hero Group, I spent about four and a half years uh, running a small B2B uh, fintech uh, on the, in the software um, space. Uh, which was basically around workflow management for investment banks, um, advisory firms, and capital markets. And before that, I spent uh, 10 years in sort of the institutional finance world in investment banking and asset management at Citi and JP Morgan. So my own personal journey has been very much from the institutional side all the way through to the business side and, you know, and, uh, and beyond uh, in there. So lots of lessons uh, across multiple dimensions that I'm very happy to speak about. Excellent. And I think I'll just get straight into something that I was really curious about. So for Money Hero, one of the things you talk about is market education, which considering the markets you're in, some of them are quite developing nations. Where did the challenges you see there for the gap between what the base education is in those countries versus what you offer? Yes, I think it's important to start with the overall mission of the company. 
Um, so the mission of the company is actually to make, you know, personal finance decisions, life's personal finance decisions, uh, a time-saving and rewarding experience at the end of the day. So that's actually really in recognition that actually, you know, consumer finance and your own personal finances um, is such an important topic. Um, we all intrinsically know that, don't we? That it's it's important to get these things right across the multiple dimensions of our lives. Our lives change. We go through life situations. It requires different sets of financial decisions to be made and different, therefore different products as well. However, it's um, it's not necessarily the the most enjoyable topic for a lot of people. To, <laughs> I don't, to, I, to I don't know. I I love it. <laughs> oh, perfect. Uh, in that case, you can be our spokesperson. But it, it can be complicated, right? I mean, if you've ever tried to learn about an insurance policy, for example, it's a challenge. Um, for a lot of people, uh, it's a bit of a challenge. But that's kind of what makes it uh, important uh, to do as well. So you're right. Actually, the level of uh, financial education across these markets can be very different, right, from one country to another. But even, I would argue, even within a market that is more financialized, like let's take Singapore as an example, with a plethora of different choices that are available for the consumer, it's still really complicated. And, and there, there could be lots of variations, right, in terms of understanding between different groups of people, different, different socioeconomic classes and so forth and so on. So it is, it's actually a challenge everywhere. It is, yes, a very, it, is a, it is a challenge in sort of the more emerging markets of our markets, but it can also be a challenge, right? Um, depending on the product set you're looking at across the more developed markets like Singapore and Hong Kong and even Taiwan. So we, we, spend, a lot of time on this. we spend a lot of time on this uh, to try and get this right. I mean, we focus a lot on content, both with our own brands, as well as, uh, you know, the third parties that we work with on this front. One of the one of the comparators I always think is quite stark is when you we look at the Nordic countries where they all get a very strong financial education at school, and I was told that many of them are able to take complex hedging mortgages and there's no issue because they all understand it. Um, I thought, my God, I worked in banks for six years and I'm not sure I'd understand a hedging mortgage. So. <laughs> so it's a challenge that I'm glad that you you guys are helping overcome in many of these these markets. And so that's not the only thing you guys do, right? As well, you you also have the part of the business which allows you to break down the barriers of your own research and say, hey, if I want a loan, so it's on insurance. I need this, right? Yeah. So it's basically um, that is the comparison aspect of it, in a sense, right? Mm -hmm. um, if that's the aggregator. Um, aspect of it. So if you go to any of the websites, for example, that we run, yeah, you can look at all the choices and have a look at all the offers. Um, you know, that's actually part of the rewarding experience as well. I mean, we pioneered in Asia the concept of giving sort of welcome gifts, for example, with specific financial products, particularly credit cards. It's and it's part and parcel of the journey. It shouldn't. There's nothing wrong with it. I mean, people like that sort of thing. I mean, I know I like it, right? Uh, as well uh, as a as a consumer. But yeah, so of course, there's a huge aspect of content and, and, you know, making sure people understand what's happening. The other part is the marketplace part where you can see all of the financial products, all the terms and all the offers in one place, uh, very easy to use. And actually for, for a number of our product lines, especially on the insurance side, where we're actually, you know, we have broker insurance brokerage license across four of our markets, we can actually host the entire consumer journey 
on our websites as well, right? So the entire journey, meaning you can look at the product, you can apply for it, you can pay for it, can all be seamless, you know, with a great user experience as well. Um, so we do, we do continue to think about all of these things um, on an ongoing basis. It's important to have that. The other thing that's actually really helpful for a lot of people is, and people may not be aware of this, is we have our own websites I've been talking about. Like in Singapore, for example, SingSaver and Seedly, you know, very well-known consumer finance uh, platforms, right, that we control and, and own. However, we also have a side to the business, which, is, which we call a B2B business, where we power essentially offers for other content providers in the ecosystem. So this part of the business is called Creatory. Imagine this, you're on a blog. Yeah, somebody's writing a blog that's talking about lifestyle, travel, throwing in a few credit cards in there for different options. If they want to enable the consumer to actually purchase that product from their blog, our infrastructure can power that. So that's actually really great, right? Because on a, on a number of different dimensions, obviously it's great for us because we expand our reach. But it's actually great for that content creator as well because it gives them a monetization channel. And if you think about the rise of the creator economy and empowering people to do more with their lives as well, we're trying to you know, kind of uh, help that along the way. And of course, it's seamless for a consumer. If you, you might be used to reading your favorite blog in that space. Like why can't you actually transact you know, directly from that blog, for example? You don't need to go somewhere else. It's really interesting a proposition that you've got there. And I, I guess a question I would ask is, you've talked a lot about the upsides. So let's just go for a question. How do you, how do you ensure the integrity of the content that that brand is being linked to? So it's a really good question. I mean, the first thing is all of the parties that we work with and what we call, what we call affiliates, but they're essentially a form of a channel partner for us. Um, they have to go through a, a KYC process. Then we actually have account managers um, that are based in each of our markets, whose job it is to, on you know, liaise with these channel partners to make sure that you know specific, for example, editorial guidelines may be being adhered to. Some of the uh, the right kind of um, information is being put on, so there's no discrepancy in terms of the terms, for example, if they include that within their content brief. Brand guidelines are being followed in some cases uh, with regards to specific financial firms and their and their products, right, and so forth and so on. So we do work in partnership with them. It's not they're not left to their own devices necessarily in that regard. So it is designed to be self-service, but we do have the kind of the more of a user management overlay uh, on top of it, just purely from from that point of view, actually, to ensure that there's a level of integrity that's that's embedded within that. Yeah. There we go. So taking a step backwards, you, you talked a little bit about the, the group as a whole. Could you, could you talk us about how you got from the original brand to being, you know, like, uh, I think it's seven brands in total across four or five countries. That's quite yeah. a big growth, right? And what, what, was the, what was the incubus for that? And how did you make the decisions on how to grow at each step? I think it would be a fantastic story to understand. So it's actually, you know, the genesis of the company, and this is before I joined, but the genesis of the company um, was such that the individual brands were basically set up in each in different markets. And they were trying to do the same thing, essentially. And at one point in the past, I think it was around 2015 or thereabouts, 
there was a conscious decision made to kind of roll it up under one umbrella, right? And then you kind of you have one entity that is operating different brands at the same time, and it was a big bang kind of approach that was taken. What we've done over the past few years, especially since I joined, is we have made a really strong conscious effort to improve, I would say, consistencies between them, including from a platform point of view, uh, the way that the KPIs look, for example, right, in terms of the way the businesses are run, the strategic planning for each of the markets, right, the way that... So, so here's a bottom line at the end of the day. These are really not seven different businesses <laughs> that are being run in five markets or thereabouts. It's you, you essentially have the same type of business, which is a consumer-facing aggregator business that is just called something different and has a different user-facing look and feel to it. We've made, I think the effort from a standardization point of view behind the scenes um, is really important because at the end of the day, number one, you want to have some level of consistency in terms of kind of operational performance of the company. You don't want to have you don't want to have redundancies in terms of duplication necessarily of resourcing as well from a company point of view, um, and also you want to um, you want to be uh, scalable in the sense that if we did decide, for example, to go into other new markets in the future, then you'd want to be able to have that playbook and kind of spin up a new market, right? As well, the reason I mention all of that is because you know the whole I guess the you know this podcast is about lessons from growth, lessons regarding growth, right? Having a really well thought out strategic planning process, right? And the way that you manage that business across markets, taking into account the differences in the markets. Yes, don't get me wrong. You know, regulatory environments may be slightly different. Consumer behavior is different. Uh, people respond differently to, to different items. You have to have the flexibility to do that. But knowing what the commonality should be and actually managing the business properly utilizing that, having the right cadences, for example, making sure there's cross-pollination of information across these different countries as well. So, you know, people based in one country are kind of learning from each other, they don't feel disjointed. Um, you've got consistencies in culture and all that as well. These are actually really important. And that's, I think those have been critical to the success from a growth point of view. And have you taken a focus? So it sounds like it was quite disparate to start and then it came together. Um, I do want to loop back to the Money Hero title to find out how that was born. But what I'd love to know is, have you therefore found efficiencies of scale or even just built in that scalability through probably your tech stack, but also your people? Yeah. Correct. Yeah. So a lot of those efficiencies from a scale point of view and what I would essentially call operating leverage um, in the business have, have, yeah, have come through. I mean... Definitely like product and technology consistencies is a key factor uh, for that. But you have other key factors as well. So for example, you know, we, we may deal with, you know, from a commercial point of view, uh, we may deal with financial services firms that in, are inherently multi-market. So then they want to have a consistent approach, right? Being applied across different markets. So think about a bank that you know, large, maybe a large, like a large regional bank would have a presence in, in a, a number of these markets. We're in a position, therefore, to deal with maybe the centralized decision makers plus their local teams. But the way that we structure it 
is kind of consistent across you know the entire company and so that's great because it allows us to have that the i would say the commercial viability to be able to do that in a way that a player that may be just focusing on one market and doesn't have the playbook across all the other markets wouldn't be able to do i mean that's a very coherent kind of example right or maybe you know you take a type of content that we figure out like works really well from a search engine optimization point of view in terms of the structure right and then you have the template so you can apply that template across other markets yeah maybe the words might be slightly different right and the language might be different but the structure of it could be the same ultimately that's an like an efficiency driver in its own right right from a from a digital marketing point of view as an example as well so we've gone through and systematically i would say thought about like these issues like one by one and cascade them um essentially across the company to drive those op- operational efficiencies you were talking about and you you joined at series b so was it already at that stage where it was heading towards ipo and that's it or did it still have that small smaller scrappy scale up type of environment going on yeah so when i joined um it was Towards the beginning of 2021, we were kind of like smack bang in the middle of COVID. Uh, so COVID was obviously a massive accelerant, right, for this kind of company because a lot of customer acquisition essentially moved online digitally. Uh, people, I mean, think about your own behavior. Who went to a branch, um, <laughs> you know, a, a bank branch in those days? You couldn't, right, for in a, in a lot of places because you were locked down. So everybody started looking online. They started reading more online, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. The whole the processes that financial services firms applied uh, to enable customer acquisition then shifted online. So I joined at a time when the company was starting to accelerate. I would say because of some of these tailwinds that were uh, that were coming through, and we kind of consistently saw that across all of the markets. And then what we you know, and then we took advantage of that essentially to be able to say, "Wait, this is happening." Let us put the sustainable structures in place that can kind of lead to sustainable growth going forward as well, as well as the operational improvements that could come. Because obviously then the macro environment from a fundraising point of view, et cetera, changed very dramatically uh, last year, right? Within 2022. So a lot, so I would say the, the systematic thinking that took place to put on those foundational elements right, from an operating perspective across these different functional areas and so forth and so on. That was actually super, in the end, was super necessary. I mean, for more reasons than one at that point in time. But what we've tried to do is we've tried to, we've tried to maintain the energy. We've tried to maintain the, like, the innovation, you know, the, like, you need to have a certain level of process and thinking, but you don't want to lose the creativity either, right, at the end of the day, clearly. And we're not, it's not as if we're done yet just because we're listed either. I would say the addressable market ahead of us in our, even in our five markets we're in, is like nowhere near tapped out. So, but you know, to take advantage of that, you want to keep innovating. You want to keep being uh, innovative from a, not just from the product and technology point of view, but just across the border. I mean, when it comes to commercial, the way you sign deals, marketing, the way you do business operations, you know, even customer success, all of that stuff. You want to keep that energy and that temp that tempo going. Yeah. Um, obviously, easy. So it's not that's not it. Now you're listed. You're you're still going to keep that innovation drive going. The... Well, it has to be the case, right? Push um, has to be the case because I mean, you know, growth doesn't come from anywhere. Despite the fact there's structural tailwinds remain. Right at the end of the day, macroeconomically, this this region we're in, 
is great from that point of view. You can look at any of the kind of the nominal GDP forecasts going forward, uh, you know, the positioning of the market, um, the fact that like inflation seems to be under control by the looks of it. I mean, just that's a global thing, but it's obviously here as well um, in Asia. All of those are great structural factors. You know, the financial services system keeps deepening across these markets. Digitization keeps happening. So these are great structural factors that will provide a nice little kind of like wind in the sails <laughs> on an ongoing basis. Yeah. Uh, but it doesn't mean that like you can just rely on that and should rely on that at the end of the day, right? Because you've got to keep competing. And are you, I look at some of the products that you offer and I wonder in my head is, have you come across resistance from the market? Probably not so much from the financial institutions, but those more embedded groups like agents or advisory groups who were, by nature, they were created from the inefficiencies you're trying to solve and now you're a threat to them and how they've been earning in the past. Yeah, like so, so the thing is, um, for, for most of our product segments, well, number one, I think the nature of the direction of travel um, is to be able to see easily the different options that are available to you, right? In a very kind of coherent type of way. Most of the products are actually, including on the insurance side, actually, uh, those are general insurance products. The banking products, credit cards, for example, a lot of the general insurance products, even personal loans. Yes, there are, there, there are complexities there, right? But it's not so complex either that somebody can't look at an online situation, read about it, and then kind of understand where it fits into their profile. What we see, what we don't do, uh, for example, at the moment is we don't really, we don't have, you can't really buy life insurance, for example, right, through our platforms. Now, I would argue, okay, maybe there's a regulatory and licensing angle, but you can get a license to do that. The fact of the matter is that somebody probably still wants to talk to a human being, right, at the end of the day to actually understand something as complex as life and life and health insurance. And that's absolutely fine. Uh, we actually work with providers to, you know, to give leads to those agent groups that can then, uh, they can then, you know, actually try and convert those leads uh, at the end of the day, right? And that's actually quite a successful part of the business because the quality of those leads ends up being fairly high because it comes through our channels. But we're not trying to, I, I wouldn't say we're trying to, we're, we're trying to replace agents when, for, for really complex categories of um, consumer finance products. But we are trying to simplify the understanding for as wide a range of consumer finance products itself. So, I mean, some of the challenges that kind of synonymous with what you've spoken about, actually, I think happened a bit earlier in the sense that, you know, some consumer, from a financial services point of view, I think in like, you know, I remember when I first joined, there were still some question marks around from some providers as to why they should work with a third party. Why can't they just do it themselves? They can do digital marketing themselves, right? But at the end of the day, we've, we've kind of proven that number one, there's a, there's a consumer intent, like there's enough sufficient traffic, there's sufficient conversions that are happening on our platforms coming through. And then also the fact, for example, that we handle the fulfillment and sourcing of all the rewards, the physical rewards as well that are attached to these products. That's a strong value add from a financial services firm's point of view because they don't want to deal with that. I mean, it's not part of their core business. Um, so all of these things kind of came together and then the way that we kind of managed it, you know, ended up being pretty successful and it, can, it continues to be uh, at the end of the day. But I think, I think just philosophically, like the direction of travel is that you need marketplaces, 
at some level because people want to have yeah. that they want to have that ease of of comparison and they want to have that ease of choice and that scalability as well um and at the end of the day it's good from the from a uh, financial services point of view because they get access to an ongoing stream of, of new customers right that are coming through yeah. at scale uh, and it- I guess one of the reasons I put the, the comparator in is because I, I mean, coming, sometimes coming to Asia, you see things that are new ideas that are stuff you were so used to in Europe, um, yeah. and vice versa. You go back to Europe and you're, you're like, oh, wait, hold on. Why can't I do these things that I can do in Asia? Um, but the comparator side is, um, I think money saving market, I think it was called. And you had Martin or whoever it was, the, the famous money guy. Saving, money money <laughs> saving expert, I think. Yes, that's okay, the one. Right? Which, yeah. which is actually part of Money Supermarket now um, as their group. Yeah. Um, so Money Supermarket has been around for, you know, for a long, long time. It's much older than, yeah. than, uh, than certainly our company. Um, so yeah, we... And that was the, that and that's the reason I came and brought it up. Yeah. Because I was saying, when I got to Asia... Um, I was surprised that I was asking about some of the products that would be on there and people would be, oh, talk to my, talk to my advisor, talk to my agent. Here's their WhatsApp. Here's their, so that's like, what? Yeah. <laughs> what? Um, so yeah, you guys are familiar. And I, I, I think where I'd like to go now is um, that your passion and your energy is really there. And I'd like to explore a little bit more about that. What, how you personally took your journey in because you, you met you teased us a little bit earlier you're talking about your time in institutions you're talking about um, a little bit about your multinational um, expeditions so t- talk us through where did you come from what's your name where do you come from in the good old silver black ways <laughs> yeah yeah exactly so i remember watching blind date um as a kid oh, that's it <laughs> but no look i mean so i so my personal journey is I was always very interested in, um, I want to say in finance and, and business and different learning about different businesses and business models and, and things like that. So honestly, coming out of, um, you know, university, undergraduate degree and all that, uh, I thought didn't really, wasn't 100% clear what I wanted to do, but investment banking seemed like a really great option to kind of fulfill all those. Where did you go? Things. Where did you go to university? LSE. LSE, yeah. Uh, okay. But yeah, so so I kind of ended up joining the investment banking world to be able to look at different types of companies, right? But from a very different angle, from a obviously from an institutional finance angle. And I, I spent, like I said, like 10 years in that world um, across different roles uh, globally. I had a really great time, uh, learned a hell of a lot. It's a really amazing training ground. But I always had this kind of itch to try and actually like run a company or start my own business or something like that. And that's what led me at the beginning of 2016 to leave that investment banking world behind and, you know, work on my fintech startup um, that I did uh, for the, you know, for the four and a half years. And I did, I, I thought I saw a problem in those days that I really want to solve that was kind of linked to my previous experience. And I thought it was an opportune time to actually start up a software company um, to work on those types of problems. Now, I learned a lot during that process. For one reason or another, it didn't really work out, which is fine, because uh, we all have to go on that journey, and you learn so much by doing it. I did have 30 people working in that company at one point. It was revenue generating, and we raised multiple rounds of capital and so forth. So in that space, it was an interesting journey. But I wanted to continue and, and work at scale, right? And really also lead the, the development of, I would say, the, the fintech industry in Asia. I had had 
a lot of history working in and out of Asia over many years, including when I started in the investment banking world. I moved to Asia in 2011. I was in China for a bit, and then I moved to Singapore in 2013. Um, I did leave in the middle, partly, to go back to the UK to work on this company and do all this other stuff, which it ended up being global in nature. But I really wanted to come back, continue the fintech journey, do it at scale, and ideally do it in Asia. And luckily, with Money Hero Group, I ended up doing all three, <laughs> basically. Nice. Um, so it's been a you know a great fortunate outcome, which I'm very grateful for. It's a different type. It's a different class of lessons and experiences that have been gained, though. Yeah. Right. By doing. But that. you you learn you learn a lot by. Uh, and to be honest, what you've described doesn't sound in any way like a, a negative. It's that you've you've achieved more in that in that you're in than most are able to do on their journey. You've got the funding rounds. You've been able to grow the team. You've been able to go to multiple countries. That's something that shouldn't ever be underestimated, how difficult it is. And personal toll, it probably took on you as well to do it. Um, so what I'd love to know is, what would you say the three lessons you took from that are? I think lesson number one is be very clear about what the commercial drivers of the market are that you're either trying to enter and build in or scaling in. Um, and by commercial drivers, I really mean things like what, you know, what is the willingness to pay from a client point of view? What does that look like in terms of sales cycles? You know, what does it mean in terms of unit economics? Um, these are so critically, critically important. Like to be able to really understand that and understand even things like the personality profile drivers and person, people that are decision makers and your clients. Because at the end of the day, like, you know, we're in a world where, you know, you have to generate revenue and you have to be able to show great unit economics, right, to be able to actually build a business. Because the funding environment is just, it, there's no tolerance, you know, unless you're super lucky um, or working in a super hot sector like AI, potentially, I don't know, I'm not in that space. But like, you know, you, just generally speaking, you need, number one, you need to be able to show that. If you, do, if you don't show that, you're actually doing yourself a disservice because then you'll end up working on a business kind of proposition for a long time and probably waste a lot of time, to be quite frank, right? And I don't think anybody wants to do that at the end of the day. So just be rigorous about that would be lesson number one. I think lesson number two is it's often, and this is kind of a general statement maybe, but it's it's so true in my experience, but often it's better to slow down to move fast. Like think about things and structure things and plan for them a little bit before you go ahead and execute. I mean, like the natural inclination, I guess, and the pressure that people will have, especially when you're scaling, is to just go and do it, right? And which is fine, action is good, but being able to think through the problems, think through the commonalities, the, do the scenario analysis and all that stuff, right? The planning is so helpful. Also because actually the act of doing that and formalizing some of this means that the ability to explain it to a lot of people, including in your own teams, is just so much better. Yeah, so I think people systematically underestimate that, that aspect of slowing down to move fast, right? And then number three is just all about people at the end of the day. I mean, just be, you have to be really clear, right, about how you want, who you want to work with, how you build your teams, how you manage your teams, 
um, the organizational development aspect of it and being super crystal clear about that and managing those situations properly. I mean, once again, it sounds it like it literally sounds trivial and trite, but I would say, especially in the in the in in Asia, and part of the reason I think people probably underestimate how difficult it is to do business here is because it's so different from market to market from a people point of view, right? Yep. Culturally and uh, you know all that as well. Hiring practices, philosophy, etc. Everything can be very different. Um, but yeah, you have to learn that, and you have to kind of you have to you know you have to go with it uh, and execute. And I, was, I was talking to a, a group of startups a few weeks ago. And I found myself having to disagree with a panelist who'd just been on before because they were talking about the um, business card culture. Mm. Saying, oh, in Asia, everyone does the business card. I said, some places people do that and some generations do that. But in other places, you definitely don't want to be handing over a business card. You just look old fashioned or out of date. Or and I use Thailand as the example. So, you need to be asking for their line, and if they if they say to you, "Let's take a selfie," that means they actually like you, and they'll they'll actually contact you afterwards, right? So, the three lessons I think you were telling us was one: make sure you've got market fit; two: go slower to go fast; take the time to really do the the hard miles; and three: really take spend the time to build your team in the right way with the right capabilities and the right outlook and understanding of the markets you're in. Absolutely, absolutely, and be a good listener uh, as well whilst doing all of this. <laughs> um, and, and something I'm curious about there as well, just to build on what you've said. I'm an avid user of Instagram. Um, unfortunately, not to watch people doing the dances, but because there's um, endless bite-sized chunks of business wisdom that people are yeah. distilling and giving in their, their face. So thirty-second lessons. And what I came across yesterday was was fascinating. And I think maybe we'll apply and I'd love to get your your feedback is to say, so the difference between a first-time entrepreneur and a second-time entrepreneur is the first-time entrepreneur is so focused on their product and the second-time entrepreneur is really focused on distribution because they understand that without great distribution, you're never going to go anywhere. Would you agree? Or I think the difference, at least for me, and this is just my own perspective, right? I think the difference for me between a second time entrepreneur or let's say like serial entrepreneur and the first time that you're doing it is yes, in a sense you're right. But the the interpretation of that is once again, you really go after the market dynamics first and you're really like overly fixated on that, which is synonymous with your, with your point about distribution versus product. But it's not as if you can, you you can't you can't ignore the product obviously right you have your product has to be it has to be fit for purpose for what you're trying to do but you go all out on making sure you commercialize it properly and you can get those points of evidence really really quickly the other the other key difference on the other hand as well is your ability to see around corners is a lot better the second or third time around because you you've got the muscle memory from all the mistakes you've made and all the different situations you've been in before so instinctively like you can you can kind of see oh well you know if i do this then probably this this and this are the consequences with this with you know with x y and z probability attached to them and like, you'll you'll be able to manage that differently um and you'll be able to short circuit a lot of the decisions right that would have taken you ages to actually get right the first time around um but yeah your innate i would say your innate understanding of like what it means to commercialize essentially quickly 
like ends up being a lot better right and you you, you kind of know that i mean because you've gone through the hard yards the first time around um i'm trying to feel all that out particularly in the technology world i would say um particularly in the technology world because it's these are all like by and large they're all kind of like enterprise sales related issues right yeah. um in one way shape or form so and something I'd, I'd like to dig a bit more into is you talked through some pretty challenging periods covid um getting around all different countries but actually there's another element there which resonates with me because i did the same you're going from institutional into fintech world they talk to you a lot in the institutions about resilience but really what they mean is um, let us let us make, tell you to do more and you learn how to cope with that. But where, when you get out of the institutions into fintech, it's more about true resilience. It's a hundred things are hitting you in the face every day and there's stuff completely out of your comfort zone. You just have to roll your sleeves up and do it because you can't say, over to you, James, over to you, Sarah, whoever, it's yours to deal with. How did you approach that and how did your how did your curve go look i think it's not for the faint-hearted right i mean at the end of the day in the sense that you it's funny like you know you hear you hear these kind of sayings like for example elon musk saying your entrepreneurship is like looking at out the edge of the abyss and chewing glass at the same time and you think oh that's a that's a really great kind of line right and it sounds really kind of evocative but when you go through it, you realize it's exactly like that. <laughs> uh, except the difference is you're kind of looking out the abyss, you're chewing glass, and you're getting punched in the face all at the same time. So it's the fact of the matter is, is that you just have to own it. And you kind of have to like love that process um, in a kind of masochistic kind of way the first time around. <laughs> anyway, it would be, my, uh, would, be my, would be my interpretation of that. I mean, if you, the honest truth Feel is, the pain. If, you, if you do it and you can't, if you really find it too painful and you don't like it, then you just have to stop, mm-hmm. and and just have to recognize that personality-wise or whatever, you it's not for you. And then, you know, if you've started a company, you, you just stop. I mean, like then you have to go back into the sort of formal employment route um, at that point in time, right? If you're an entrepreneur. But if you can, if you if you can basically say that, look, all of these things are learning experiences on like day in day out for years, then. You know that's that's something that will stay with you, and then you just apply those lessons in the future, and you know that'll be great. Um, and you don't even have to be an entrepreneur to benefit from that, right? Like you could actually go and, for example, you could go back in the corporate world, um, and you can apply some of those lessons in a different guise. You can be an investor. I mean, the best venture capital investors for sure that I've ever worked with and come across have been operators in the past and have gone through those journeys. And like the dynamic is just so different when you're talking to people yeah. that, have, that, that have done that and so like all of these things you know really benefit from having gone through all of these uh, painful kind of processes so and we're talking about pain we're talking about resilience um and i'll go hug myself later <laughs> but the um give you a virtual hug now oh, there you go <laughs> yeah love it love it great <laughs> um, but something i was again something i saw the other day and I'm sort of consciously aware, but not really sure how it solved is. Someone was saying is, they were talking about digital assets to start with. They were saying is only something crazy, like 3% of founders in digital assets are are women. 
right? And that doesn't even then start to go to the other spectrum of diversity that we could go through. And then I thought, and I thought, oh, that's pretty bad. But I understand that because there's a lot of risk attached to that that asset class, and risk is not always great. And then I looked at the startups, and the story was similar. Um, not as bad. Fifteen percent of founders are women in in startups, but still pretty low. And I I understand that the research has said that there is there is more less tolerance for risk, which maybe makes it harder for um, harder for certain demographics to engage in the startup life. But what I'm wondering is, from your journey, is if you could put the messages out there to reassure people on this call who are maybe just saying, I don't know, like they're hearing these words like resilience and toughness and through, but actually, how would you reassure them that actually making, if they're thinking about it, but they're not quite sure that that jump is worth taking? Well, I would say the number one, I mean, the I think the perspective of the outside world to things like, you know, you you trying to start a business and it not working out. I think they've obviously radically changed. Like even since when I first started working in my my previous company at the beginning of twenty sixteen. I mean, that's like you know, nearly eight years ago. And I think just that tolerance for well, if it doesn't work, you can do something else. Whether it's start another company or if you choose to go the you know the corporate path. Those things are much more recognized now right and even in places like asia like in singapore for example it might not have you know it might have been per- perceived differently maybe by a corporate employer or something like that um, but I-, I would say the people look at startup kind of or growth experiences and think you know it's okay like if it didn't work out there's there are like a hundred different factors as to why something may not work right at the end of the day and that's that's all right because the recognition of the learning and all that is is there so I would suggest that, you know, if you, as long as you have kind of a well-thought-out, well-qualified process before you start something and you've done the necessary research and, you know, qualification, like I said earlier as well about the potential opportunity, then there's nothing wrong. Like, you know, it's, you're trying to build a business at the end of the day. Like, you have to start from somewhere and everybody has to go, should go on that journey if they want to. Um, if it's not a success, it might not be. It might, it might not be anything down to do with you um, at all, right? Or your capabilities. It could be any number of different factors. So as long as you feel comfortable with the process that you've gone through to, and you're passionate about it, you should go in and give it a try. Don't be afraid. Give it a go. Give it Take a try. The jump. So you, you have the ability to do it. Fully recognize that not everybody has the ability to step out and, you know, not have a. Uh, like salaried employment, right? For whatever reason, and, and take that take that jump. That's that's cool. If you've got the ability to do it, then do it. It could be a really, it can be a rewarding experience in in so many more ways than one, right? In terms of who you meet, what you learn, the places that it could take you to, um, it can be it can be phenomenal in so many different ways. I love that. Before we uh, sort of close out, I'd, I'd like to ask one one question. What what's your favorite quote? Like it can be anything, but what would you say your favorite quote is? The one that immediately comes to mind. A favorite quote. Um... Yeah. These are all my wild cards. I always bring out a wild card at the end of this, and I always change it so no one knows oh, what's coming. Oh. Hang on, let me just close down ChatGPT for a second. Um, but... <laughs> <laughs> 
I've actually used one quote already in our in our chat, right? I yeah. used that Elon Musk quote. And then I paraphrased the Mike Tyson quote about getting punched in the face. I just didn't say that everybody has a plan until you get punched in the face. <laughs> I mean, if, if, if favorite quotes equals the ones you can recollect. <laughs> yeah, go for it. If, but then those would probably be, those would probably be it. <laughs> At the end of the day. Actually, actually, I'll tell you what my favorite quote is. So one of my uh one of my university professors back in the day always used to say you know this was a this was actually at cambridge which is where i did my mba many years back right so cambridge is a very beautiful city very historic and he always said don't rem- don't forget to look up don't and it, i mean what he was essentially trying to say is just consider the bigger picture around you right here as well and think about the opportunities but I do think that it's kind of, it's apt because I do think we do tend to get really focused and kind of go down the rabbit hole in whatever we're doing. But sometimes like looking up and taking a step back is such a great thing. I mean, I love doing that. Um, and just thinking about the bigger picture or something different as well. Don't forget to luck up. I love that as a final yeah. closing thought. Don't forget to luck up. Um, well, look, I've, I've really enjoyed the discussion. <laughs> And it just keep going, but I was looking at the timer and I, I knew we would go through. Um, maybe we can do a follow-up um, as the journey goes on and understand how, yeah. how, it's, uh, how it's going. But I wanted to thank you very much for your time. Um, I, I've enjoyed it. I, I, it's been fascinating. It's probably been one of the ones where I've, I've been the least coming in with staccato questions <laughs> and your engagement's been fantastic. So thank you so much. No, no, it's a pleasure. And look, it's clearly a topic we're both passionate about, right? At the end of the day, this is why... You know, we've been chatting the way we have. Um, and yeah, would would love to continue continue the talk um, in the future as well. Thank you for tuning into this episode of the British Chamber of Commerce Singapore's podcast channel. Before you go, don't forget to subscribe and why not leave us a rating and review on Spotify, Apple, Google and the other podcast platforms. For more information about the Chamber, please visit our website at www.britcham.org.sg and tune in next time for a brand new episode.